Hello, everyone. Welcome to Noted Bitcoin Podcast, episode 0.19.0. This is Michael Goldstein. I'm joined by my co-host, Pierre Rochard. Hey, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. And today we have two guests. I think this is a, a first for the Noted Podcast. We have John Newberry and uh, James O'Byrne uh, from Bitcoin Optech um, to tell us about the, the new venture and uh, answer some questions from our wonderful Twitter followers. How are you guys doing? Good. Doing pretty well. How are you? You're doing great. Uh, John was on the Noted podcast before uh, one of the early episodes. I don't even know which one. I think it was six. James, this is your first time on, but you've been on Marty Bent's podcast. So if you guys have not heard James on Marty Bent's podcast with his brother, definitely go check it out. And John was recently on Marty's podcast again. James, were you on that one or is that a John exclusive? That's a John exclusive. Uh, so go check out Marty's latest episode on uh, Tales from the Crypt. Now, I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, so uh, let's try to not uh, rehash anything that you said there. Let's keep it exclusive to Marty's content empire. Well, it, it got pretty heady towards the end, yes. And, uh, As things do on his fun. podcast, yeah. John yeah. has the tendency to get cosmic. <laughs> when, that, when that alcohol starts to kick in. Am I the first repeat customer for Noted? That's correct, yes. So you have the distinct honor of being the first uh, one and a half appearances because this doesn't count as a whole appearance. Okay. This is a, but that still, makes me the, that still makes me the Mike Munger to your Russ Roberts. <laughs> there you go. That's a good reference. Um, all right, so uh, let's kick off by listening or um, you guys telling us about what led to the creation of Optech? Kind of what was the inspiration for it? Um, and that'll give us some insight into what you guys are accomplishing. Sure. So as you guys are aware, um, back at the end of last year, the uh, fee market got pretty crazy for Bitcoin. And uh, block space was kind of running at a premium. And uh, not necessarily for... I guess the effects, the effects of, of a shortage of block space were kind of exacerbated. So obviously there was heightened demand, but the fee markets ended up being sort of over-exaggerated, mostly because um, some of the largest users at the time were uh, not really using the latest techniques to do, say, fee estimation or um, to batch transactions together and uh, make, make more efficient use of space. Or, you know, they were doing fee overshooting uh, because um, nobody was using RBF uh, replaced by fee. So um, there was a situation that it quickly became apparent that, that we were kind of inflating fee prices for really no good reason. And around that time, um, Adam Back saw all this and he uh, made a post um, to some mailing list talking about um, a sort of grand Bitcoin scaling challenge. And uh, John read that post and decided to kind of take initiative and um, start an organization that would go out to various companies, various large users of the blockchain, and um, try and help them adopt um, these ready-to-deploy scaling techniques to make better use of chain space um, and to reduce fees for everyone. So if, if Adam Beck is behind everything in Bitcoin, is it really decentralized? <laughs> Good question, Yeah. Um, it's backed by the bank. It might be an AI like Satoshi. 
Yeah, I've never met him in person. So I actually I missed him by like minutes when he was uh, at dinner in New York uh, during in the same steakhouse where we were hosting the uh, New York dinner during Consensus Week. And instead, I met Samson, which was a huge letdown. <laughs> Samson, of course, a loyal listener to Novid. You'll get that joke. Yeah. Um, We're fans of Samson. I'm kidding. Uh, I've got your hat in the background there. So, yes, Adam, Adam did send this post. I think it's on his blog as well. But the idea is not a new one. It's, um, I, I think, unless your name is Peter Wooler or Andrew Polstra, if you have an idea in Bitcoin, it's probably been had by 10 other people already. Um, the idea just to, rather than shout at people on Twitter and Reddit, try and encourage them to do what's right for them and what's right for the Bitcoin ecosystem as a whole. So that, that resonated with me. I'd already had similar ideas and other people jumped in. James was very keen to help. Um, we've got Steve Lee in San Francisco, who was also thinking along the same lines and is now involved in Optech and doing a great job for us. So that's, that's where it all started from. It always struck me as interesting that in an ecosystem where practically everything is open source, we have these, the, the most profitable and biggest companies in the ecosystem, the exchanges, are all running their own pl proprietary platform. And it's all, you know, some of them have like handwritten uh, wallets. They don't uh, use any sort of, um, they might have like open source primitives, but not uh, for the rest of the stack. Has that been uh, your experience? Yeah. In fact, for example, um, there, I think it's not a single company that we've talked to that uses, say, Bitcoin Core's coin selection algorithm. For various reasons, you know, they've all kind of rewritten some of these core pieces of infrastructure. Um, and sometimes they're good reasons and sometimes they're sort of incidental legacy technical reasons. Or maybe they have particular constraints or had constraints at the time that, that kind of dictated that they should write one thing or another, or maybe that thing just didn't exist when they started to build their infrastructure. So yeah, we, we've, we've definitely seen a huge fragmentation in terms of the tooling that's out there. And a common complaint that we get from these companies is that, that libraries aren't, aren't standardized enough and that they're, you know, some of the uh, open source ecosystem uh, is a little bit uh, wanting in terms of tools for people to just pick up and use, but, but it's actually, I mean, as you guys know, it's a really thorny problem. There are all these different language runtimes out there, um, all these different kind of um, architectural constraints. And so it's, you can't just go and build the Bitcoin library that everybody's going to use. Um, but uh, we're, we're, we're working to actively get a sense of um, where the, you know, the low hanging fruit is, if, if there is, um, if there are pieces that we can kind of help to, either break out into separate components or, or um, help people use within core. In your uh, latest newsletter, uh, and by the way, I recommend everyone uh, listening, go uh, sign up for the Bitcoin Optech newsletter. It's very new and it's already one of the best newsletters in the Bitcoin space, uh, written by uh, a former noted guest, David Harding. Um, in the latest one, our first guest, that it's actually true. Yes, it was like episode two or three. So in that in the in the latest one in a section actually by Anthony Towns, not David Harding, he gave an example of uh, how you guys helped uh, Zappo with uh, UTXO consolidation. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I should clarify. We didn't help them. Oh. That was um, Anthony's um, own initiative and, and Zappo's own initiative. Um, Anthony just 
volunteer to contribute to the newsletter and explain what they've been doing. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting piece. It's, it's pretty short and to the point and just talks about how Zappo had several million UTXOs following um, the end of last year. And they worked to consolidate those and reduce their UTXO set by 4 million, which is, which is great news for them because it means they have a lot fewer economically unviable coins that they wouldn't be able to spend if these bike again. And it's great for anyone who runs a full node because it reduces the requirements, the memory requirements of running a full node. So uh, when, when this happened, I remember that people were looking at the mempool and there was a bunch, I, I don't know if there was a lot of transactions, but um, there was a lot of uh, block space demand in the mempool uh, for uh, a very low fee. I think they did like one Satoshi per byte. And, you know, first people were like, oh, this is someone spamming the mempool again. And then people quickly jumped in to say, no, I mean, this looks like a very responsible way of doing uh, a consolidation because essentially miners will only include those if they've exhausted the uh, people. Anyone paying more than one uh, bu- uh, one satoshi per byte. Yeah, that's exactly right. So those those UTXO consolidation transactions were set with a fee rate of I think one, slightly over one satoshi per byte. Um, there's a, a little bit of consideration on Zappo's end about when to send those out to make sure that they don't get stranded. Um, and that, that's covered in in the report that Anthony wrote for us. Um, but yes, essentially it's 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 good for it's good for them. It doesn't cause any harm to anyone else. And in fact it's good for anyone running a four node. Did they send it to Segwit addresses so that then afterwards it'll be uh, set up there? I'm not I sure. Yeah, but, um, that is one thing you can do, and he mentions that in the report that you can you can use this consolidation to also tidy up your your UTXO set. So if you're changing address format to SegWit, or if you're changing to multisig or, or some other format like that, it's um, it's a good opportunity to do it at the same time. Awesome. And what do you guys see for the future of Optech? I'd say just sort of a continued involvement with uh, the open source community and companies to make sure that everybody's uh, kind of tightly coordinated and aware of the latest um, developments um, in terms of things that can help people make better use of chain space. We're going to keep putting on workshops. We're running a Slack group for engineers to coordinate on. Uh, We're going to keep doing the newsletter. And then we've got a few projects cooking in the background that aren't quite ready for prime time, but we've got a dashboard that we're working on. And then we're thinking about producing some kind of written collateral, like um, some kind of documentation or a, a cookbook uh, for certain scaling techniques. So we're kind of looking at all that. Cool. Is the dashboard showing like the, the current state of uh, the mempool, the network? That's exactly right. Yeah. So it, it's online now. It's dashboard.bitcoinops.org. Um, still early days for that, but we're hoping we'll be able to use that to tease out interesting observations about what's going on in the network. So we're looking at things like um, SegWit usage, uh, number of consolidation transactions, number of batching transactions per block, and that kind of thing. This reminds me of uh, Jameson Lobs Project, Satoshi, uh, which I, I think it only reminds me of it because it uses the same front end of uh, Kibana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's some really great resources out there already, and so we're, we're kind of looking at what the the comparative advantage of this is going to be. Another one, if your listeners don't know, is um, ox.me, 
which is done by Laurent from Samurai Wallet. We found that to be a really fascinating resource. Um, he has all kinds of different measures on there that are um, interesting to drill into, specifically around uh, address identification and, and uh, some basic chain analysis stuff that's kind of uh, neat to drill into. Has that been something that you've heard from industry participants about wanting to figure out how to improve their privacy? It's certainly not their top priority, I'd say, that these world right. exchanges and other services. It's, it's not really something that customers demand too much. So if customers don't want it, then it's not going to be their top priority. But it is, it is kind of a background consideration. Um, some people are concerned about batching, um, wh whether or not there's like sort of veracity to this claim, um, because, you know, they say there may be privacy implications there. So um, I, I think people want, want to think about privacy, but where it really sits on the, um, on the priority list is a little hard to discern. What would you say, what would you say um, some of like the more higher priority thing for customers are? Well, for the companies we've spoken to, um, obviously they're customer-oriented companies. They want to have good service for their customers. So mm -hmm. service level agreements, a lot of them are very interested in having transactions confirm quickly, like in the next block, which you might argue about whether that's always possible and whether it's it's the right thing to be focusing on. But for, for some of these companies, that's what they need or that's what they promise. A lot of times their backends are struggling to keep up with, certainly towards the end of last year, um, the number of new customers they were onboarding. So if, if you think back to November, December last year, when fees were spiking and maybe people in the community were asking, well, why aren't people using SegWit? Why aren't they implementing batching? Well, a simple answer is they were so busy fighting fires with their infrastructure and they were having thousands of signups every day. They were just tr desperately trying to keep their heads above water. Those are probably two of the things. Yeah, I'd say for the, for the higher volume users of the chain, um, which tend to be exchanges, uh, user experience is really a huge consideration because I think that's, that's effectively the, the comparative advantage of using one exchange over the other, unless you're really looking at um, trading fees and things like that. But, mm -hmm. um, but UX tends to be a big focus for these people, especially when you're talking about some of the more advanced techniques for scaling, like take, you know, replace by fee, for example. If you're an effective user of RBF, you can feel pretty confident in being aggressive about potentially undershooting a fee rate in order to, you know, maybe get some pretty good savings on fees typically. And then in the, in the unusual case, just RBF out the transaction that has a, a too low fee rate. The problem there is that um, the user experience around RBF is kind of confusing because, um, you, you know, a lot of these exchanges want to initially offload the status of a transaction um, onto, say, a block explorer. So they won't, they're inclined to show the users a transaction ID pretty immediately. But obviously, if you use RBF, that transaction ID might be ephemeral, it might go away, it might be replaced by um, one or two or three more transactions. So thinking about how, how to employ some of these techniques and to some extent, you know, reveal enough to the end user so that they're not scared about what's going on is kind of a tricky thing uh, to think about in certain cases. So this is one of the things that, that we're really trying to um, help, help these member companies work through just to figure out how they can both use these advanced techniques for saving a lot of fees and, and provide a good experience for their customers, which can be kind of tricky. Yeah. Is, is some of the onus on like 
customers understanding Bitcoin better? Because I've talked with people who uh, go log on to Coinbase and they literally think that Bitcoin is something that exists within Coinbase and they don't understand that like it's a network that is kind of a, a you know, outside of Coinbase. Um, so like there's just so many new people who have come in and who have a very vague understanding of what is going on. Uh, and then they expect everything to be like Facebook.com. Yeah, I'm inclined to think, and this is just my opinion, um, and I think it definitely bears doing some 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 user research. You know, if I was Coinbase, I would probably uh, Coinbase or Gemini or, or Bitstamp or any of these people, I would probably invest a lot of money in doing some some user studies and figuring out the demographics of who who uh, are using my product. But um, I, I sort of tend to think that there's kind of a barbell distribution of users. I think like on one end you have users who, who know almost nothing about Bitcoin, just want to buy some, want to hold some maybe, and they're not going to be phased at all if you give them a list of transaction IDs that correspond to their payment, or if you replace you know an existing transaction ID. Then I think on the other end of the barbell, you have people who know Bitcoin backwards and forwards, you know, have, have probably been in this for years and are pretty familiar with things. Um, and so, you know, I don't think they would be phased if, if you gave them a pretty, um, detailed output of, you know, okay, we bumped this transaction two or three times. So um, that's, again, speculation on my part. But I just, yeah, I, I, I don't see there being this kind of middle ground. I think, like, once you start to do the research, you, you sort of get hooked and, um, and uh, can't help but learn about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And then the other aspect of it is if, if Lightning were able to, on the client side, and I don't think it's there yet because I've been experimenting with it, but get to, you know, the same kind of user experience that you would expect uh, opening up, um, you know, a lot of different apps, like let's just say Slack or something, uh, where it's just very hand-holding your way through it and then you're online and there's not really an opportunity for you to screw anything up. If you were to get there and then exchanges themselves are running uh, lightning nodes and you know, allowing people to deposit with lightning transactions and withdraw with lightning transactions. Couldn't that like that takes it even further than this one confirmation that they want uh, for having a very slick user experience. Uh, this would be the epitome of that, right? Where it's basically instantly in the uh, consumer's wallet or in the uh, exchange client's wallet. Do you think that like that's five years out, two years out? I hope it's less than five years and I hope it's less than two years. I, I would hope that exchanges, any large exchange I say, I would say should be running lightning nodes in a lab right now. They should be looking at this seriously and thinking about what the future of their business looks like once lightning is, is mature and is widespread. Um, I would hope that in six months they would be doing betas with, with live customers and dipping their toe in the water because lightning's coming and it's getting better every day. It still sucks a bit now in, in certain aspects and it's still immature, but it's the most compelling future scenario we have for Bitcoin right now. So any company that relies on Bitcoin should be looking at lightning. If And, and a lot of what you say about lightning solving a lot of these problems, I think is, is certainly could be true. Um, there was a good talk at the recent Building on Bitcoin conference by Sergey at BitRefill, where he talks about justice. BitRefill have been one of the early adopters and are leading the way in terms of Lightning integration. 
and he talks about how Lightning solves a lot of the UX issues with Bitcoin. You don't you don't need to worry about confirmations. You don't need to worry about transaction IDs. You just get a, an invoice, and you're done. Yeah, the nice thing about Lightning is that it does, it, it does abstract things like like confirmation time, and I think it it shifts a little bit of the complexity to to the technical implementation side of things. Like for example, there's obviously the liveness requirement with Lightning, and so we're going to have to iron out how watchtowers work and how you know if someone's operating a Lightning wallet on their cell phone, um, obviously that can go offline, and so so to to pull for transaction status or or channel status. Um, you're going to need either either a third party or you know another one of your devices um, kind of watching the network. So that's that's one aspect uh, of complexity. Another is is preserving channel state. So before um, with Bitcoin, all you really need to keep track of are your your private keys. With Lightning, there is certain state associated with each channel that is critical for you to preserve. And so if you lose that, then you're you're in trouble basically. But I, I think. The upside is that these challenges can be kind of papered over and abstracted in acceptable ways. Uh, it's just going to take us a little while to figure out exactly kind of what the trade-offs we want to make with the trust models are and, and what the technical solutions themselves look like. But I, I think, like, you're right, if, if you just kind of consider Lightning as a black box, the user experience is going to be a lot more pleasant and a lot closer to what, what people wanted to pitch Bitcoin as, um, which is an instant way of getting paid without any trusted third party. Yeah, it's funny that it's it's taken like uh, a full circle uh, back to that. And really, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into the issue of the block size limit now, but um, it, I, I do remember when I worked at BitPay, that was like the thing about the controversy over zero confirmation and whether that was safe or not. And then I remember RBF coming along and really pissing off a lot of people who were uh, focused on, you know, merchant adoption at the retail level. Um, but now we've come full circle. And I think that that user experience becomes uh, much better once again, uh, making Bitcoin great again. <laughs> so uh, we got some questions from the audience and I picked some out that I think are particularly relevant to uh, your guys' technical background and knowledge. Um, and I'll ultimately leave the uh, final selection for you. And we can edit anything out if we uh, have a hard time, uh, you know, answering this uh, any given question or finding the right question we want to answer. James, do you have a uh, your favorite one that you want to pick out? Oh, man. Let's see. Um, there was one that I did like. It's about uh, how to basically scan through the blockchain and figure out like how does a wallet when you're restoring from from uh, no chain state how does a wallet determine which transactions um, uh, are relevant to that wallet which line number is that 36 yeah it's row 36 all right so how can a restored wallet actually find all the transactions that pertain to its many private keys does it actually try decoding every single transaction on the blockchain with every single private key generated from every single Bitcoin address it holds. That sounds very inefficient. True. <laughs> uh, so I wonder if there is some math magic involved. However, given that Bitcoin addresses are just hashes of public keys, that sounds unlikely. So how does rescanning work in Bitcoin Core? 
And this question was from at Hermingshaus. Yes, with a German spelling, H-A-U-S. Yeah, so um, when you start up Bitcoin Core and you have a, a wallet that actually has contents, um, but no chain state, or uh, um, let's say that you're, you're just trying to rescan the chain for something that you might have missed. Basically, um, we do actually go through linearly. We walk through every single block. There are um, 500,000 and maybe 300 blocks to, to walk through. But luckily, that, that doesn't take very long. Um, you know, depending on your hardware, it can, it can be a few hours. But um, so uh, for every transaction, we actually look through each output. And um, the, uh, the routine for this is in a, a file called um, cwallet or wallet.cpp. And it's a method called scan for wallet transaction. You can go and read it uh, if you want to. Um, but yeah, the idea is that we're stepping through each transaction's outputs. And then um, we're calling out to a function called isMine. Uh, which basically looks at the output and does sort of a, uh, a case statement on what kind of an output it thinks it is. And then based on that, it'll, it'll do some pattern matching type stuff to say, okay, is this, is the public key being referred to here in my wallet or is this script hash in my wallet? So that's, that's a fairly lengthy process, but um, it doesn't take, you know, days or anything unless you have some really slow hardware. Another interesting aspect of this question is um, uh, HD wallets and how that works. So uh, as your listeners probably know, the idea with an HD wallet is that you have a single seed that can allow you to deterministically generate multiple addresses based on that seed. And so um, an interesting question is like how, how you determine how much of that, of that generated tree to, to walk um, when you're trying to check for balances on each of these uh, addresses. So you can Google around for something called the gap limit, which is kind of an implementation detail on HD wallets. And it's, it's effectively how many addresses that you pre-generate to look for existing funds. So that's not far from uh, what the person uh, described, which is basically testing every single one of them. Yep. yep. I, think, I think Electrum does about 20 or 100 or so. Um, and depending if, if you happen to know that your wallet goes deep because you've used it a lot, you just set that limit to a much higher number and it'll automatically do that. But um, if it was a relatively unused wallet, it'd be kind of silly to check a thousand addresses when you probably only used five. Yeah, but Michael, you don't know if anyone has time traveled. So you could be missing out on a significant amount of Bitcoins if you're not rescanning from the, the Genesis block. <laughs> Uh, so I would also want to bring up, uh, there's a proposal for uh, comp compact filters that would potentially allow Bitcoin Core to have much faster rescanning. I saw Greg Maxwell was talking about this on IRC. Uh, I think it was yesterday. I don't know if you guys caught that. But basically, the idea would be to uh, build up the, or to, to do that kind of same client-side filtering that a SPV, quote-unquote, uh, client would do, except you're just doing it uh, from the point of view of the Bitcoin Core wallet so that you can quickly identify blocks that are relevant to you and just rescan those blocks uh, thanks to those filters. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Bring it down to seconds instead of hours. That'd be cool. I'm a bit behind on my IRC reading. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I think that it's it's certainly a better solution than what I've always felt like should exist, which is an address index 
but which uh, a lot of people view as being inherently unscalable and therefore uh, not worthy of uh, Bitcoin Core's attention. That's an interesting point that a lot of companies actually do use address indexes and they either use um, one from, I think, Insight. That, Insight, yeah. That is um, not very well maintained or they roll their own. There seems to be a lot of demand out there for a, a good open source address index and whether or not that's in core is, is an open question, but it's something that a lot of, a lot of companies want. So what, for, for the argument of having it in core, do you think that like, I would attach like the word political to this, but you know, essentially uh, making it so that running a Bitcoin core node provides you with the best in class services increases the probability of you running a Bitcoin core node. Uh, and in terms of running a full node versus running a, you know, something that's not fully validating, uh, arguably better for decentralization. Uh, and if you're on the reference implementation, then uh, you can be certain that you're on the right blockchain. So like, is there, because you hear people on the consumer side who say uh, Electrum is the best wallet and you should attach it to your Electrum personal server, which is, you know, I believe a different implementation in Python than. Yeah. 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 It's, it's certainly more code to audit. Um, and uh, yeah, I, Pierre, I, I tend to agree with you personally. I sort of think that now that Jimpo has built out this really nice way of adding these opt-in indices um, to core, that um, I'm, I'm certainly inclined to, you know, at the very least, add some of the very popular indices like, uh, like the address index. But um, you can also easily make the argument that, you know, core is a, is a pretty security critical piece of software. And that the bigger it gets, the more code that's in there, um, you know, the more chance there is for vulnerability. So that's that's kind of an easy argument to fall back on. But um, because I mean, uh, in in theory, like Bitcoin Core could just be the node with like a ZMQ, you know, streaming output and no other uh, functionality at all. Right. And then that you know everything else, like the wallet or the mining or anything like that, would be in a separate application. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can you can absolutely do things that way um, right now. It's just it's it's partially a matter of performance, you know, to do a. To, to build an index based on um, ZMQ and to do that retroactively for the entire blockchain um, is going to take forever. So to do that just right right in there in C++ is, is going to be really quick. Um, and then it's a matter of like someone has to then not not just go download Bitcoin Core and, and verify those binaries, but then they have to download you know this thing that that wraps Bitcoin Core or or Bitcoin Core and this peripheral thing. So. Um, it's a really tricky debate, and uh, there are good arguments on both sides. But yeah, I, I'd be interested in seeing people work on this. And it, it's not like at a company where there's a final decision maker or a, a product manager who's like, this is going to be out of scope. It is driven by the contributors that are all working on this open source, whether you know as volunteers or getting paid by a company. Like They have their own priorities in terms of what they want to maintain uh, and be reviewing as code to this consensus critical repository. Yeah, everyone scratches their own itch. And there have been, I think, at least three attempts in the past to get an address index into Bitcoin Core, um, which have all failed to get merged in the end. It might be as hard as raising the block size limit. <laughs> Not quite. Uh, Jonas Schnelli has um, 
uh, I think a thing he's been toying around with that uses the peer-to-peer -peer protocol to actually build um, certain indexes so that that might be worth looking at. Interesting. All right, let's pick a second question. John, this is uh, your turn. All right, uh, let's do 25. All right, question 25. Uh, unfortunately, we, we don't have the Twitter handle for whoever submitted it, but they'll know. Uh, can you guys explain unspent transactions more in depth? Okay, um, well, mysterious anonymous questioner, um, I think you're getting a couple of concepts perhaps mixed up here. Um, we talk a lot about unspent transaction outputs in Bitcoin. That's a very important concept. Um, but maybe you're talking about unconfirmed transactions. So I'll, I'll try and explain both. A transaction in Bitcoin has a certain number of inputs. Those are the coins that are being spent in that transaction. And it has a certain number of outputs. Those are the coins that are being generated and sent out from the transaction. And those outputs then go on to be inputs in the next transaction. So an unspent transaction output is any output from a transaction which has not yet been used in a new transaction. They're often called coins when we're talking about them in the wallet, but they're the fundamental building blocks of new transactions. If you take up all of the unspent transaction outputs in Bitcoin, they add up to the total sum of Bitcoin in existence. Maybe you're talking about unconfirmed transactions. An unconfirmed transaction is a, a valid transaction that has been built and signed and sent out onto the network, but has not yet been confirmed in a block. Perfect explanation. Thank you, Pierre. Um, all right. Now, James, you want to try to pick a, a third question here? Sure. Yeah. Um, I really like uh, row 60 here, which is, I would like to time lock my Bitcoins to prevent attackers from getting my Bitcoin, even if I'm tortured for my private keys. How comfortable would you be with using something like uh, some URL or using op check lock time verify to time lock for, let's say, five years? What would the risk of the Bitcoin network changing be too high, like mentioned in the far future lock section of the time lock article on the Bitcoin wiki? Um, this is something I've, I've thought a little bit about. I think it's like a really appealing idea to, to time lock your coins um, just in case, I don't know, to, to avoid the $5 wrench attack where um, you might go to all these really sophisticated lengths to hide your private keys from, uh, from anyone um, invading your home. But ultimately, if someone just kidnaps you and is able to coerce, you know, uh, out of you, your private keys, well, then that's problematic. Whereas um, there's a constraint that you can set on the spendability of um, the unspent transaction outputs that John was just talking about using something like uh, check lock time verify, which basically lets you specify some date in the future before which you cannot spend a transaction output. So I, I think this comes down to personal preference to some extent. Um, I would say if you use something like, uh, this guy mentions a, a link to um, coinb.in, um, which is, a, I guess, some website that would generate uh, a script, a transaction um, uh, output script that, that will allow you to time lock um, a spend. I would say, um, Whenever you're using anything like this, anything that's generating a transaction for you, this, this thing just outputs the, the raw hex of the, uh, the transaction. Um, and I would say verify anything um, that you ever generate with um, uh, the Bitcoin CLI command decode script, which lets you pass in that hex string and then just get out a structured understanding of like what the, the script actually does. Um, so I'd say... Uh, Check that out. And then personally, um, if you're concerned about some kind of a protocol change or 
in, in the wiki, they actually mentioned, okay, if there's some, uh, say, vulnerability discovered in ECDSA and, you know, some cataclysmic uh, fork is going to happen to address that. Well, obviously, if, you're, if your coins are time locked for five years, you can't, you can't spend um, and recover your money. So um, a good compromise might be to say time lock for, you know, uh, some random value between 50 and 100 days and, and just, you know, have some kind of periodic refresh of that. Um, but again, this comes down to personal preference and, and what your own uh, threat model is. Yeah, one of, one of the risks I've uh, thought about with that is uh, if you were giving someone, <clears throat> if you wanted to like, you know, uh, give a kid, you know, some Bitcoins on their 18th birthday, um, you still have to maintain the security of that key over that time period. Um, it's not as though uh, at that time they get to choose an address that it goes to. Yeah. Right, because if someone gets that key and then so when the time lock is up, you're both racing each other to uh, spend it, right? Is it such that like, could you, well, I guess this isn't even relevant to time lock per se, but uh, if two different people have the same private key uh, and they're racing to go spend it, um, couldn't they just, wouldn't, wouldn't they just RBF it to ultimately the entire value of the transaction? Because they're trying to, uh, they're like in an auction for free money. Exactly. Yes. It's a, it's a scorched earth situation where, say, a, um, a hacker has stolen my keys and they're, they're trying to spend them and I'm trying to spend them. We will outbid each other until the fee is basically the entire value of the transaction. So actually, actually, from an implementation standpoint, it would be the first person to reach core's preset absurd fee limit, uh, which is what, a tenth of a coin? One Bitcoin. Yeah. Ah, the first person, the first person to get there would, uh, would presumably get. So you should just start there. Just start there. Really. Point one Bitcoins. All right. <laughs> yeah. Is that in the? That's world? interesting. I mean, I haven't heard of any stories of this actually happening though to someone. Well, we saw um, the event at Bitthumb or Byte, Bythumb, Bithumb, whatever you want to call it, the Korean yeah. exchange. Uh, were reputedly hacked last month, and we saw a lot of transactions with huge fees on. Um, oh, okay, interesting. Question there: Were those were those by thumb? What am I? What's your thumb? I'm going to call it a bit thumb. I think there are two T's. No, there's one. There's one T. One T. Yes. Um, bit hum. Bit hum. It's almost as mysterious as Toshi Nakamoto. How do you pronounce right. that? I'm going to call him by thumb. <laughs> Um, potentially Python were taking all of their hot wallet funds and transferring them to cold wallet funds with large fees to, to race the, the hacker. Potentially. That's, who knows? All right. For the next question, I'd like to pick it out because I think that it's a very controversial one. Yeah, pick something salacious. I'm tired of these. Uh, and, and by the way, that last question was from Merkel Monk. Yes. Thank you, Merkel Monk. Uh, this next question is uh, line 89. It's uh, from at Surfer Jim. He says, if the conditions could be arranged, how would you, could you even build Bitcoin 2.0? Is there any set of circumstances you could envision that could enable that to happen? So basically the question is, uh, when do you guys sell out and become shitcoiners? <laughs> <laughs> well, the next thing we wanted to talk about is our brand new ICO. But more seriously, I mean, you do hear people uh, talking about uh, being excited about something like Grin, 
So clearly there's uh, things that um, Bitcoiners would, for, for or in Bitcoin engineers, for whatever reason, are interested in. Yeah, and, and Grin's a good example because it's interesting tech, right? It's, it's not like a Bitcoin clone with a few variable names changed. It's actually implementing really interesting cryptography with really interesting properties. Um, but it, there's always a temptation for newcomers to Bitcoin or cryptocurrency to look at Bitcoin and see all the shortcomings and say, let's just fix those. Let's, let's iron out all of these bugs and, and start again. Um, that's not really that interesting because the interesting thing about Bitcoin is the economy around it and the culture around it. And if you try and build Bitcoin too, you throw all of that away. Um, there's, a, there's an old post by Hal Finney um, that says something along the lines of any successor to Bitcoin immediately destroys its value because if Bitcoin can be replaced by the successor, what's to stop that successor being re replaced by something else? So yeah. can the you big, please? The, yeah, no, the big caveat to that is what if you bring along the UTXO set so you have the same distribution? Uh, is that even uh, theoretically feasible with uh, with the projects that are being like Grin or any other thing? Essentially, like a hard fork where, but you don't really keep Bitcoin; <laughs> you uh, just keep the UTXO set. Yeah, yeah, that's that's possible, and that is what happened with Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Gold and a hundred other Bitcoin two point zeros last year and early this year. Well, minus any sort of serious attempt at rearchitecting the uh, <laughs> a, a, any anything about it, right? It's just changing a few uh, variables and some uh, network magic, and then. You're good to go. Yeah, but I think the point still stands um, that if you can do this Bitcoin 2.0 with a UTXO airdrop, then there's nothing stopping Bitcoin 3.0 with a new UTXO airdrop. And software is never done. So Bitcoin 2.0, you know, maybe it will have better properties than Bitcoin, but Bitcoin 3.0 will have better properties than Bitcoin 2.0. Um, so there's there's no set of circumstances where John you would you would uh, consider point two point oh. You're you're uh, fishing around for your gotcha. Well, no, I'm just saying that like that's that's the audience question. He's saying, is there any set of circumstances you could possibly envision that would enable you know you to get started on Bitcoin two point oh? Um, yeah, I think a fundamental critical break in the consensus model of Bitcoin that caused it to completely break and lose all value, um, that would stop me from working on Bitcoin. And if a group of people then went on to work on a new system with a fixed consensus model and were working on interesting technology with good incentive models, then I would probably work on that. Yeah, I think another point worth making is that um, a lot of the sophisticated technology that's that's in something like Grin comes with trade-offs, and there isn't a free lunch. Um, confidential transactions, for example, um, you know, raises concerns about, say, like a hidden inflation of the money supply um, or bindingness versus blindingness, which which are, are are both interesting discussions. And they're not, you know, they're they're not like a Pareto dominant technology over what Bitcoin has now. I'd say. The closest thing to that is going to be like the ECDSA to Schnorr 
upgrade. And Schnorr just seems like sort of a, a superior um, signature format. But um, I, I, yeah, I, I think there are so many special circumstances around Bitcoin's founding that it's going to be try going to be sort of hard to emulate that again. Um, especially when you think about like building up the credibility of, of, of the system from scratch, like in my mind, Bitcoin's bootstrapping could have only happened once. Um, and I think if you look at how sticky, say like the SHA-256 mining infrastructure makes it, it's really, it's really hard to conceive of a, a second system. But I mean, I think a lot of the way that I keep tabs on that is, is by, um, watching the people who are working on Bitcoin. And a lot of the, one of the compelling things to me about Bitcoin is, is the quality of the engineers working on it. And really as someone who's been in the software industry for like 10 years, um, uh, it's, it's far and away the, the biggest brain trust I've ever seen. Um, and so that's, that's really reassuring to me. I have a, a slightly different question uh, for myself, uh, which is uh, at what point would you slap uh, 1.0 on Bitcoin? Oh, geez. Well, so there there was some discussion about just moving moving it over. So then we would be going on to like eighteen version eighteen, and then it would be eighteen point zero point zero, rather than treating it as uh, yeah, just to to obviate the issue entirely. Yeah, or well, eighteen point zero eight for August twenty eighteen. Um, I don't really care to spend too much of my time debating that. As long as it's monotonically increasing, I'm happy, <laughs> <laughs> and has minor versions. But on a serious note, um, you know, in the past, uh, Bitcoin engineers have always emphasized that Bitcoin is an experiment. Mm -hmm. And when would you stop emphasizing that Bitcoin is an experiment? I I think Bitcoin will always be an experiment. I wouldn't emphasize that because I yeah. it's it it will it could eventually grow to be an experiment that the whole world is using. But at that point, the fact it's an experiment is not the most interesting thing about it. It's, I think it's kind of this like exponential distribution type thing where the, the, the likelihood of failure um, is much, much greater the shorter the lifespan of the thing is. And if you really wanted to, if you really like put a gun to my head and said, like, come up with some metric that indicates um, Bitcoin not being an experiment, you know, I, I'd probably come up with something derived from like market volatility. Um, I, I think it, like after say 50 years of this thing being alive and, um, you know, not having massive protocol changes being proposed, um, and things just kind of humming along, you know, whatever that steady state looks like. Um, I, I think by then it, it will have pretty much ceased to be an experiment insofar as like democracy has, has ceased to be an experiment. Um, maybe things will continue to change and, and, uh, emerge, but I, I think at this point, like Bitcoin is more or less here to stay unless there, there are, there's some like Achilles heel in the, in the cryptographic primitives that we're using. Michael, do you want to pick out a question? Um, I'm just kind of like looking down the list. Uh, it's something popped out, uh, which I, I haven't read the question yet. So we'll see if it's actually good. But uh, it, it was okay. talking about the, the hard fork that we'll have to address in the future. Uh, so this is from uh, Kezon, Kez, Kez, Kezown, K-E-Z-O-W-N, and uh, Bitcoin will have to uh, will have to hard fork to address the Unix timestamp bug before twenty one oh six. What happens to second layer solutions like the Lightning Network when the hard fork occurs? 
isn't it better to hard fork now while Lightning is still in development? Um, the Bitcoin community is trying so hard to prevent a hard fork from occurring to make old nodes uh, compatible with the network. Will these old nodes have to be updated in the future? Thanks. Mm, great question, Kezer. Um Yes, indeed. There is a, a feature of Bitcoin that the timestamp in the blocks is only um, 32, bits. 32 bits. And so you'll run out of space there before 2106. Um, the obvious way to fix that is with a hard fork that changes that timestamp field in a new block header format. The unobvious way is to hack it into a soft fork. Um, but let's, let's not talk about that right now. Um, what happens to second layer solutions across a hard fork? Well, I don't know. It depends on the, the second layer solution. It depends on the implementation. Perhaps that implementation is ready for a hard fork, perhaps the transaction formats that are being used in that second layer solution are valid both before and after the hard fork, in which case you know, maybe your channels can stay up, maybe the Lightning Network can stay up across that, across that hard fork. We have about, what, 90 years to figure that out, so not too worried. Um, maybe Alex Rochard's grandkids can uh, actually cut that out. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to talk to your family. Maybe... Uh, the Rochard clan can figure that one out in the 22nd century. Um, okay, is it better to hard fork now while Lightning is still in development? No, I don't think so. I think um, it's better to put off hard forking as long as we possibly can because we should sweat as much as we can out of the network as it exists now without making a, a non-forward compatible break to the consensus rules. The third part of that question the Bitcoin community is trying hard to prevent a hard fork from occurring to make old nodes compatible with the network or these old nodes have to be updated in the future. It depends, again, um, if you have a full node or, or some node implementation that is um, validating all the rules of the Bitcoin network, if those rules change, then it will be, um, it will be pushed off the network if there's a, a, a consensus change. So if you're relying on that service or that hardware or that node implementation, then yes, you need to change it. Um, but again, we have 90 years to figure that out. So I'm not too overly concerned right now. I think uh, things like this do uh, kind of force us to have to steel man the, the, the positions on hard forks a bit. Uh, I was thinking about this with the, the BIP42, um, where there is the issue where at the very end of the halvings, there is a, a bit integer overflow that caused everything to basically restart. And so Satoshi's original vision, um, I think was the 21 million. However, Satoshi's original implementation uh, was infinite inflation for all time. So uh, there was a, a change. And I guess like, I, I don't know the exact way to characterize it, but I guess it would be like it was, it was sort of a hard fork to change that, uh, but you know, well into the future, uh, you know, uh, uh, sorry, like the hard fork wouldn't have been a hard fork until uh, the twenty one forty anyway, uh, because that changed. And so, uh, if if I'm if I'm not mistaken, if you did run um, a node prior to that code change in the future in, in 2141 or so, uh, it would have uh, a problem syncing with the latest blocks. 
Um, I might be totally wrong on that. Um, but in any case, a lot of people like to use, you know, uh, old node syncing as sort of the basis of, you know, what is the real Bitcoin? Um, but, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong, but if that's correct, then um, it's not the case that simply being able to sync an old node um, tells us whether or not something is the so-called real Bitcoin. I think um, Bit42 is a soft fork. So the consensus rule around the Coinbase payout is that the miners Coinbase payout has to be less than or equal to the block reward plus all of the fees in that block. Gotcha. So an old node pre-Bit42 would allow a block reward of 21 or 50 Bitcoin per block after 2140, but it wouldn't disallow a block reward of, of less than that. Um, so it would still theoretically be able to sync. Okay, gotcha. It's, it's all very semantic, but uh, yeah, I think that was a soft hold. If your listeners haven't read Bit42, uh, it comes highly recommended. I think it's one of the- It's one of the best bits. So it's a very unique bit. Yeah, when I first read it, I was like, oh, this is funny because it was published on April Fool's Day and I actually did think that it was an April Fool's joke. Uh, it wasn't until later that I realized, oh, wait, no, that thing was that was real. Yeah, likewise, likewise. And and this is my pet issue of uh, monetary policy. So you can imagine uh, the shock it was to me. That's <laughs> yeah, We've been scammed. Uh, all right, let's tackle. So she was trying to play the long con, uh, but we caught it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one last question here, uh, yeah. and I've saved the most controversial for the last. What are your views on there being only one implementation client, i.e. Bitcoin Core for Bitcoin? Is it a danger to decentralization? How or should it even be tackled? And that's by uh, Dexter on line 41. Oh, boy. Um, I, I, it's another engineering trade-off that you make. And... Um, this, this particular trade-off has very specific circumstances. If you look at, say, the Lightning ecosystem right now, they have um, three major implementations. I'm, I'm sure there are more out there. Um, LND, C-Lightning, and... Uh, is it Eclair or Async? Okay. Um, and and they, they've spent a, a ton of time debugging um, these incompatibilities between the, the various protocol implementations. And so... While you can argue that the presence of multiple implementations has helped them iron out the protocol, I think they would also argue that the, the protocol still isn't isn't totally ironed out. There have been these these um, compatibility issues, which, when you're talking about a second layer protocol like Lightning, aren't that severe, right? Because the damage is basically limited to the the channels that that are or aren't being opened by uh, any given client. You're sort of isolating that failure to. Um, an individual. Whereas when, when you're talking about a base layer protocol like Bitcoin, um, to risk uh, an incompatibility between um, node software is, is, is really a huge deal. Um, so this is all preamble to say that um, there's really nothing preventing there from being multiple implementations run. In fact, um, there, there are many multiple implementations of Bitcoin. Um, there's Bitcoin and BTCD um, and Bitcoin J, which uh, I'm not sure whether or not that's, that's fully validating at this point. But there's nothing stopping anybody from going out there and, and writing an alternate implementation. And in fact, 
um, those implementations do exist. It comes down to the wisdom of, of whether you want to trust your money running an alternate implementation. And that is not something that I would ever advise. Um, yeah, there, there might be sort of these marginal benefits to, to supporting multiple implementations as, as like first-class citizens, whatever that means. Um, but frankly, I, I think like given the, the risk, it's probably not worth it in my mind. But John, I'm sure John has thoughts here too. I think it's a good question. Um, is it a danger to decentralization that there is only one implement, one reference implementation of Bitcoin is a good theoretical question. Um, practically, I think Bitcoin Core does a, a really good job of being open and not being centralized. Um, you don't need to take my word for that. You can look at all of the IRC logs and look at all of the, the GitHub repo comments and merges. That theoretical risk exists. I think if it became a practical risk, then people would do something about it. It's not like people are powerless. There's no, there's no way that someone could seize a Bitcoin repo and people would not notice and not do something about it. Um, so I personally, my gut says it would be nice to have multiple implementations, but the technical difficulty to getting there in terms of making sure they all agree on consensus is a very high bar and not something that I think, I, I don't think there are any analogs in different software projects. You know, you can look at different web browsers that are different implementations of HTTP and HTML and all JavaScript and they agree most of the time, but if they don't, it's not a consensus failure and the economy doesn't burn. There's nothing that has as much on the line as Bitcoin consensus. So trying to take analogs from other software paradigms and, and fitting them onto Bitcoin consensus is, is very tricky. So I think, I think another um, good instance to look at is the accidental hard fork that happened as a result of upgrading level DB back in, when was that? 2013. 2013. Um, you know, let's say that you have a comprehensive test suite that you can run against any given implementation of um, Bitcoin. Like e even assuming you had a, a really good test suite, uh, it may not have caught something something as minute as that um, level DB file descriptor limitation that, that um, hard forked a bunch of nodes. So, it, it, like obviously, something like that is hard enough when you only have one implementation. You're just managing a single upgrade path. But I just think it kind of it, it explodes in complexity when you're dealing with um, uh, many such systems. So, what about the comment that the reference implementation just from um path dependency of Satoshi writing it in C++. Today it's written in C++ and it's C++ has this uh, negative reputation in the programming community as kind of being uh, off-putting for uh, new developers or even experienced developers, you know, cut their fingers on C++. We saw that with uh, Jeff Garzik's uh, failed hard fork where... Um, you know, he got an off by one error. Now, granted, you can do that kind of error in any language, but um, yeah, C++ has a reputation for being a little sharper tool. I don't think um, that error you are referring to um, in the BTC1 uh, repo was caused by C++. I think it was caused by fundamental failings in their processes. Um, 
I wouldn't say that difficulty of language would be a good reason to ditch C++. I think if if you could argue that C++ was unsafe or less safe than the alternative, that would be a more compelling argument to me. And maybe that is true, but the question is, what's the alternative? Is it is it Rust. less safe to play with C++ or is it less safe to change to Rust? And changing the, completely changing out the code base would be the, the less safe option in basically almost all circumstances. Not to mention, you know, changing to a tool that's that's um, very young in comparison to C++. You know, C++ compilers are extremely mature. Uh, C++ specification itself uh, is 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 very clear, um, and it you know explicitly calls out what is and isn't undefined behavior. Whereas, um, and and that's the result of an accumulated uh, experience of of corner cases and you know uh, faults that have resulted over the years. So, I, I actually. Um, I like coming to C++'s defense because I think it's it's particularly well suited for for the Bitcoin implementation, um, especially when you consider the quality of the static analysis tools that, that are available to you with Clang and LLVM. Um, I've actually had a, a really good experience working with C++ despite um, expectations to the contrary. What programming language were you coming from, James? Um, I was coming from a lot of Python beforehand. Yeah. So that's that's a really uh, I think that's a good defense of C plus plus and the other thing too is that the language itself is evolving. Um, so right now Bitcoin is on you know C plus plus eleven, and there's uh, new versions of C plus plus that are coming out, and so it's not like uh, C plus plus itself is stuck in the nineties and uh, will never become safer or try to compete with Rust or new languages that are coming out. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree. Um, all right, so let's close out the episode. Do you guys have any uh, parting thoughts, things that you want to get off your chest, uh, announcements you want to make for Optech or shilling? Uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Let's let's show Optech one more time. Um, listeners, go to bitcoinops.org, sign up for the newsletter, and uh, reach out to us if you want to help in any way. But beyond that, thanks so much for having us to our um, extremely charitable guests. Where where else will we find you on uh, on the interwebs? Uh, I am at JF Newberry, JF N E W B E R Y on Twitter, and I'm at James Ob. Awesome! Thanks, guys, for coming on. Uh, we'll have you back on to answer more listener questions. So, listeners, go to noted.org/slash/submit to send in your question for the next time. Uh, these guys are on, or the next time Michael and I do a Q and A uh, ourselves. That'd be great. Look forward to it. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.